So another day and news of another body. Yeah, police announcing that uh, more charges will be laid against Bruce MacArthur. They made the discovery of a sixth body looking for remains of any other possible victims as they focus on properties in Toronto where MacArthur did landscaping and also stored equipment. And the property uh, belongs to an elderly couple where one of the sites uh, with the bodies are being found. And they've been living this nightmare for a couple of weeks, you know, where skeletal remains have been found in the property. Property planters and police do believe that there are more. So they've been thawing the property for the last couple of weeks in preparation for digging up the land where MacArthur was said to do digging and planting. And so a lot of this work will be done by forensic anthropologists. And if you've ever seen this kind of work, it's really, really fascinating. It's painstaking, it's very detailed, delicate, where even a particle of dirt can be found and provide clues. You know, during the Tim Bosma trial, it was a forensic anthropologist who was tasked with, of course, finding whatever remains that she could. In this case, it was of Tim Bosman. It was riveting to see how this woman got inside the eliminator. That was what was used to burn both Tim Bosma and Laura Babcock. And she worked there collecting every ounce of dust, not only to find evidence, but as she would later testify to bring whatever was left of Tim Bosma home to his family. So it was a very emotional, um, and you don't really necessarily hear this of, of these people because they're so clinical and scientific and, and, and you know, focused on what they do. But the work is very, very, very important in finding answers of what happened and to give answers maybe to the loved ones. But certainly when it comes to the court case, it tells a story of what happened to that particular person. I want to bring in Renee Wimon. Wimon I hope I'm saying that right. Wimon, a forensic anthropologist who does this kind of work, uh, to take us through, you know, what might be going on on a scene like this. Good to have you. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Did I get your last name totally wrong? <laughs> it's okay. It's Wilmon. Wilmon. Oh, yes. All right. I spelled it wrong. I'm terribly sorry. Um, let's talk a little bit about what might be going on at uh, the scene. Uh, you know, what, what happens when you f- finally are brought into a scene like this and and you know, you start to dig. Certainly. Um, One of the first things that will be done is going to be a thorough examination of the surface of the ground. Um, Obviously, with the winter weather we've been having in Toronto, the ground is quite frozen. Um, So by now, with the heaters that they've had going underneath that tent, um, the cover of snow will have melted, and that will allow the team who's working at the site, led by Dr. Kathy Grusbier, um, to examine the ground surface and look for signs of a grave outline um, or any other signs that the ground has been disturbed. And that will help them hone in on areas to examine further by excavating the soil. So in in this particular case, because we're in the middle of winter, we've had a huge amount of snow. And I have to think that the the accused would have possibly uh, done landscaping on different areas of the property. How is it that you go into that knowing what areas to look at? That that to me would be an almost impossible detail. Um, it definitely is going to be a greater challenge than usual in this case, given uh, MacArthur's professional expertise in landscaping and um, controlling how the ground surface looks. Um, so they do have some information from ground penetrating radar that was um, conducted in collaboration with the OPP. And so, so would they be able to use thermal thermal imaging? Um, the thermal imaging is l- not likely to sh- to give much um, okay. helpful detail in this case, given both the weather and the fact that the remains or any evidence would have been concealed for a long time. So you wouldn't be looking for something like 
heat associated right. with the decomposition process. Um, and the, so the ground penetrating radar data that they have will show areas where the soil has been disturbed previously, um, but there will not be enough detail to know whether anything specific is buried there. So that's partly why they're going to be excavating um, to remove the soil that's concealing what's there to determine if it's just a hole that may be a product of landscaping activity or whether it is, in fact, a clandestine grave or an attempt to hide evidence. So when you get into a situation like this, it's not, I don't know, maybe you can, but do you bring in a backhoe or do you have to start kind of scalping back the layers a little bit at a time? Um, It really depends on the scope of the scene. So they'll be using a similar technique regardless of where they're working. So on a scene as large as, say, the Picton case, they would have used a large equipment with a flat bucket to remove soil and carefully controlled layers. Um, But they'll be going about excavation in a similarly detailed process, whether they're working with small trowels or hand tools in a planter um, or on hands and knees working underneath that tent in the yard, probably in one meter by one meter square units to systematically evaluate the scene um, and removing soil in controlled layers so that any changes in the soil texture or color that would indicate disturbance or digging activity can be documented. And then, of course, when any evidence um, or remains are encountered, they can be appropriately documented and then carefully removed. Yeah, I mean, I guess you have to look at it case by case basis. In the case of Tim Bosma, because the body had been burned, they were looking and sifting through essentially it like a silt powder. Um, They did recover some bones and bone fragment, but really it was silt. And so in a case like this where they're actually finding parts... Uh, Mm -hmm. in planters, would you still be using the same techniques where you have to kind of sift through looking for smaller uh, particles or or fragments? Um, They'll still be paying the same kind of attention to detail um, of uh, to look at what they're looking at, um, looking for. And and all of the soil that's removed from the scene will not only be examined carefully as it's being removed, but likely passed through a mesh sieve. Kind of like when you're digging for gold, you kind of sift it. Right. And the other thing is, in a, in a situation like this case where they're looking for buried evidence, the physical location of evidence um, or changes to the environment within that scene are going to provide some behavioral clues um, to help understand what the actions were that led to the creation of those graves or, or holes that they're investigating. Um, and also the position of the remains within them can tell investigators a little bit about Um, the activities that went on around the time of that deposition. Whereas in uh, the Tim Bosma case, when you're you're not necessarily looking at a primary scene in that case or the position of the bone fragments are less relevant than the fact that there are still fragments there and that they were human bones. It's fascinating. Uh, When you go into a scene like this, and certainly a high profile, whether it's Tim Bosma or as we're looking at this MacArthur case with all of these missing men who you know their families are watching desperate for answers, your job is very scientific. So I I, I kind of would think that you guys are like doctors where you have a job and and you stay focused on it. But do you get uh, emotional or feel a a great amount of pressure because you know um, you've got loved ones looking for answers and or someone to bring home their loved one? Certainly. I'm it definitely is very emotional work and there's a lot of public attention on this case. Um, and for many um, forensic investigators and anthropologists that I've worked with and myself included, the emotional motivation um, and that desire to not only return the remains to those family members, but to make sure that evidence is carefully documented so mm-hmm. that 
yeah. um, justice can be brought to those perpetrators is, is a primary motivation for this work. Um, but it is also important to maintain um, a very kind of clinical or scientific detachment yeah. while the work is going on so that you can be objective and observe um, all of those environmental signals that will inform the investigation. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, in the case where uh, Tim Bosma, Tracy, you know, very clinical in her de- delivery of testimony, she said that it was in her mind to make sure that they got a vacuum cleaner to buy a brand new vacuum cleaner so that they could vacuum up every tiny particle. And her, her motivation was to make sure that they could bring as much of Tim home. Uh, to his family. It was very emotional to hear that, but clearly you go in with a mindset uh, of doing your job, but making sure that, you know, you get all of it. It's fascinating. Certainly. And even in some cases, for example, um, from the World Trade Center, when remains were fully consumed by analysis, many family members would even request the test tubes that were containers that may have held remains. So that attachment that people have to the physical remains of their loved ones is very important. Um, And so that's always top of mind for the anthropologists working on cases like these. Fascinating uh, looking at this. Renee, thanks so much for the insight. You're very welcome. That's Renee Willman, uh, a forensic anthropologist. It's just amazing what they do and how important it is to not just the trial, but to those families.